Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Rebecca Yang, and I am a pediatrician here at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. Today's episode is the second part of our discussion on sleep disorders in the pediatric population. I'm here joined again by Dr. Katie Mackey, who is a specialist in sleep medicine here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Mackey. Thanks. It's great to be here again. During the last episode, we discussed appropriate pediatric sleep duration, reviewed the concept of sleep hygiene and organization, identified diagnostic characteristics of common sleep disorders, and touched upon several strategies to approach sleep disorder based on age. It is so important for the general provider to recognize when more advanced evaluation and treatment is needed for sleep problems, especially when it's affecting the child and the family's quality of life. So as a general pediatrician, I tend to be more comfortable counseling families on behavioral modifications in regards to sleep issues, but I'm not that comfortable when it comes to using medication to treat sleep disorders. There are both pharmacologic and more advanced non-pharmacologic approaches to managing sleep disorders in children. Today, we will go into more detail on these treatment options. But before we jump into treatment options, let's first discuss one more type of sleep disorder that the general provider should be aware of. A six-year-old girl presents to clinic due to difficulties falling asleep at night. Bedtime routine starts around 8 p.m. when mom reads to her in bed. Lights are out about 20 to 30 minutes later. The child will usually come out of her room about two to three times complaining that she's having difficulty falling asleep. Each time, mom brings her straight back to bed. The child usually will request that her mom rub her legs for comfort. Her bed covers are usually rumpled up in the morning when she wakes up. This is a very common scenario and a good opportunity to discuss restless leg syndrome. As the name implies, it's associated with uncomfortable sensations in the legs. It is worse or exclusively present at night. Often the child will complain of sensory complaints such as creepy crawly, heebie-jeebies, itchy bones, or crazy legs. Often, there will be increased symptoms with inactivity such as bedtime, long car or plane trips, or even sitting still in school. The child will usually report relief with movement or counterstimulation such as rubbing or application of hot or cold items on legs. These children will have difficulty falling asleep as well as problems maintaining sleep. They often show up in clinic with frustrated parents who are concerned about the bedtime struggles that result in daytime sleepiness. What features makes a child at risk for restless leg syndrome? Well, there is a known genetic link. Usually, 50 to 60% of adult restless leg syndrome patients have a positive family history. A large portion of adults who have restless leg syndrome report that onset of symptoms occurred before the age of 20 years old. How do we evaluate for this? This is primarily a clinical diagnosis, but it may be helpful to get some labs because major risk factors include iron deficiency anemia or low ferritin with normal hemoglobin levels. Other nutritional deficiencies such as B12 and folate are also associated. Are there any associated clinical conditions we should be aware of? Restless leg syndrome can also be associated with a neurologic disorder such as myelopathy or polyneuropathy. Medical disorders such as diabetes, end-stage renal disease, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, and hypothyroidism should also be considered. Those with Williams syndrome are also at risk. In addition, medications and other substances can increase the risk of restless leg syndrome. This includes caffeine, alcohol, neuroleptics, metoclopramide, withdrawal from sedatives or narcotics, calcium channel blockers, antiemetics, venetoin, dopamine receptor blockers, and some antidepressants. Is this a treatable condition? 
Treatment depends on the severity of symptoms and the level of sleep disruption, as well as daytime impairment. Like other sleep disorders, you should review sleep hygiene and avoid caffeine, alcohol, cold and sinus preparations, and antiemetics. Implementing moderate exercise into the daily routine is helpful. Seek out biofeedback and relaxation techniques. Does medication play a role in the treatment of restless leg syndrome? Iron supplementation may be helpful for many children with restless legs with a ferritin level less than 80 micrograms per liter. There are also medications such as dopamine precursors and dopamine agonists, which may be considered for more severe and tractable cases. It really sounds like most of the sleep disorders that we've discussed can be treated by lifestyle changes, but this can be difficult in a household with different sleeping habits and stressors. Yes, in general, sleep education must involve both the child and the parent. It's important to review aspects of healthy sleep and remind parents and children that sleep is a behavior and it has to be learned. Everyone can be in charge of their own sleep. What types of cognitive techniques can be implemented? First of all, I think there can be some benefit in acknowledging that there is a sleeping problem. You can remind the child that a bad night's sleep feels bad but won't hurt you. Everyone sleeps poorly sometimes. And you were once a good sleeper, so you can become a good sleeper again. Encourage the child to think about happy and positive memories or experiences when they are going to sleep. Have the child try to change the channel from bad to good thoughts. For an anxious child or teen, scheduling a worry time or journaling worries during the day may be helpful too. There are many mind-body techniques that can help teach the child to let go of worries or fears, increase control, and quiet the mind. These types of techniques include progressive muscle relaxation, self-hypnosis, guided imagery, and dream rescripting. The idea is to disassociate fears or worries from bedtime. So how do you respond to the parent that states that they just want some type of medicine to help their kids sleep? Yes, prescribing or recommending sedatives or hypnotics for pediatric sleep complaints is a common practice for primary care providers and psychiatrists. However, there is little data on safety or efficacy of prescription and over-the-counter sleep medications in children. So how do I decide when and what to start? Remember to carefully evaluate the reason for the sleep disturbance. Assess the impact of the sleep disturbance on the daily health and daytime functioning of the child as well as the impact on the family. Make sure to ask about home use of sleep aids such as over-the-counter meds, herbals, and antihistamines. They may already be using these for help. Like any medication you plan to prescribe, you should consider the severity, duration, and frequency of the problem, as well as previous failed attempts at treatment. It is important that if you choose to use medication for insomnia, it should be prescribed in combination with behavioral therapy and sleep hygiene. We don't want children to think they are dependent on a medication to help them fall asleep. Also, many children will require escalating doses to get the same drowsy effect over time. How long should we expect to use medication for treatment? The duration of therapy should be as short as possible to achieve the desired results. Start with a low dose and titrate up as needed. Consider potential interaction with other medications and substances, and always counsel on the potential for misuse or abuse of the medications. So melatonin seems to be the go-to pharmacologic intervention for insomnia in children. Yes, melatonin is widely available over-the-counter, And there's a high level of awareness and acceptance among caregivers and providers for using melatonin. But there are a few guidelines regarding cost and benefits of long-term use. Melatonin is actually an endogenous hormone produced by the pineal gland. Levels of melatonin peak in one hour and maximum drowsiness occurs in one to two hours after the dose. 
What are the advantages for starting melatonin? There is empirical evidence of efficacy of melatonin in typically developing children as well as those with neurodevelopmental disorders. It can also be helpful with delayed sleep phase and circadian rhythm disturbances related to blindness. It has a low side effect profile. Melatonin has minimal effects on sleep architecture. Melatonin is easily available to consumers and less expensive than many other products. There are also low-dose forms in both liquid and gummy preparations, which are well accepted by children. So what types of concerns as a provider should I know about before I recommend melatonin? The long-term side effects of melatonin are uncertain. Timing of administration is also important. If the dose is timed incorrectly, it can cause shifts in circadian rhythm. In addition, the reliability of over-the-counter preparations of melatonin can vary widely. What's a good dose to start off with for melatonin? Dosing should start at 1 mg in younger children, 3 mg in older kids, and 5 mg in teenagers and adults. There's little benefit in increasing the dose above 5 mg because that's already greater than the physiological amount our body produces. So the bottom line for melatonin is that it's a reasonable option as treatment for sleep onset insomnia for kids, but we need to provide adequate counseling regarding its use. That's right. Okay. What about antihistamines? These are likely already in the medicine closet. Are they safe to use for sleep? First-generation antihistamines do reduce sleep onset latency and night waking. However, antihistamines may actually impair sleep quality. Side effects include daytime drowsiness, loss of appetite, anticholinergic effects, and even paradoxical behavioral excitation. Interesting. Let's talk about medications that require prescriptions. Clonidine is a good one to talk about. Clonidine can shorten the onset of sleep, and it's a good option for kids with ADHD and neurologically impaired children. The onset of action is within one hour and peaks in two to four hours. It's a good option because it's short-acting and doesn't cause daytime sleepiness. It is best for sleep-onset insomnia, but does not always help with night wakings because it is short-acting. How should clonidine be dosed to treat insomnia? Start with half of a 0.1 mg tablet at bedtime and titrate up by half a tablet every 3-7 to days if needed to a goal of one 0.1 mg tablet at bedtime with maximum dose 0.2 mg. Clonidine must be tapered off for discontinuation since rebound hypertension and dysphoria can occur with abrupt discontinuation. Another common prescription medication to treat sleep disorders is trazodone. Trazodone is a serotonin agonist that shortens the onset of sleep. It reduces sleep latency, suppresses REM, and increases slow-wave sleep. Side effects of trazodone include daytime sleepiness and priapism. Many primary care providers may not be comfortable with starting trazodone and may prefer this to be managed by a sleep specialist. Dr. Mackey, I get questions from time to time in clinic regarding herbal preparations. What's your opinion of using herbs as a sleep aid? That's a great question. There are a variety of herbal preparations readily available. For example, valerian root has benzo-like properties. Chamomile has some mild sedating effects. Kava is an anxiolytic and muscle relaxant, and lavender is known to have CNS depressive effects. It's important to counsel families that regulations for herbal preparations are not as rigorous as the ones for prescription and non-prescription medications. Yes, it's important to remember that even if something is labeled as natural, it isn't always safe for everyone. Agree. There can be potential interactions with prescription drugs or issues with safety for pregnant and nursing women or those who will be undergoing surgery in the near future. 
Most herbal preparations are also meant to be used short-term. So Dr. Mackey, if there is a clinical suspicion of a sleep disorder, when should a referral to a sleep specialist be initiated? That's a great question. While many primary sleep disorders in children can be treated by the general provider, there are concerning signs and symptoms that may suggest the need to refer to a sleep specialist. This includes frequent disrupted sleep, snoring, behavioral problems, and excessive daytime sleepiness. Some of these symptoms could be due to sleep-disordered breathing related to obstructive sleep apnea, which could be an entire discussion on its own. Left untreated, children with sleep disorders may have related health problems as adults. What about sleep studies? What does a sleep study involve, and are they helpful to diagnose conditions such as insomnia or restless leg syndrome? Sleep studies are most useful for diagnosing obstructive sleep apnea, periodic limb movements, and hypersomnias. Insomnia, circadian disorders, and restless legs are generally diagnosed based on history, so a sleep study is not usually necessary in these cases. What should parents expect if their child is scheduled for a sleep study? The idea of spending the night in the hospital can be intimidating for children, but the sleep technicians will make the process as smooth and child-friendly as possible. Usually, they'll have the child and parent arrive at the sleep lab in the evening and apply all of the sensors before bedtime. There will be some EEG sensors on the head, airflow sensors that are applied like a nasal cannula, belts that fasten around the chest and abdomen, an EKG lead, an oximeter, and sensors to detect arm and leg movements as well as eye movements and chin tone. Wow, that sounds like a lot of sensors. None of these are painful or invasive, and the child is usually able to watch TV or play on a tablet during the hookup process to make it easier. They can also bring stuffed animals, pillows, blankets, or sound machines to make their sleep lab experience seem more like home. Most children do surprisingly well with this process. So what kind of information is collected during the sleep study? We're able to get a lot of data from an overnight polysomnogram. The EEG data is used to determine how much stage 1, 2, 3, and REM sleep a child is getting, and how often they arouse or fully wake during the study. A sleep study can also help detect nighttime seizures. The airflow sensors and chest and abdominal belts allow us to measure obstructive apneas, hypopneas, and central apneas. Oxygen saturations and CO2 levels are also tracked throughout the night. Limb movements are noted as well, since these may cause sleep fragmentation. Wow, sounds like a sleep study can provide a lot of helpful diagnostic information. That's right, but remember, sleep studies should be taken in consideration with the overall clinical picture. By getting to the root of sleep problems allows more specific recommendations to improve sleep long-term. So it's already time to begin wrapping this episode up. What another great discussion today. It's clear that good quality sleep is essential for a child's development and health. Once a sleep disorder is identified by the primary care provider, treatment goals should include a consistent bedtime routine with buy-in from both the parent and the patient for long-term success. And when considering medication, the goal should be to alleviate or improve rather than just eliminate the sleep problem. Thanks again, Dr. Mackey. It was great being here. That's it for this episode today. An additional thanks to Dr. Lisa Leggio and Dr. Robert Pendergrass, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. 
Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the NCG Pediatric Podcast.